Well, good morning. It's uh, nice to be back this morning. It's good to see that some of you came back after last night. I'm sure Johnny Depp would be flattered uh, to hear Ted's introduction of me. Thank you, Ted, this morning. Uh, <clears throat> our subject uh, for this morning is the science of faith and the faith of uh, science. So what I want to do is speak for about 45, 50 minutes, and then we'll take approximately 20 minutes of uh, questions today. And I believe there is a questions box, so uh, if there's other questions you want asked during the, uh, the panel time, uh, which is later on this afternoon, um, you can drop those uh, questions in there. And uh, I trust that um, we all understand today, as <clears throat> Ted has already alluded to, that worship is also uh, the use of our minds. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. So part of loving God, part of obeying God, is that we are to love Him with all of our mind. Sometimes we as uh, evangelicals tend to forget that a little bit. We very happy about worshiping with our hearts and with our souls, but sometimes our minds uh, can be overlooked in the process, and we need to make sure that uh, we're loving God with the mind also. Let's begin in God's Word this morning. Uh, even with a subject like this one, God's Word has things to say. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going just to read to you three verses, verses 15 through 17. This is speaking about uh, Christ and His uh, preeminence. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that is the one who has priority in all creation. For Him, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or all things consist. Now that tells us immediately that, as we saw last night in John chapter 1, Christ the triune God of Scripture is not only the creator of the world, who was accomplished through the Word of God, the Logos, incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, but He's also continuously involved in the holding of all things together. In other words, the Christian worldview does not say, a Christian cosmology does not say that God kicked the ball at the beginning of time and has since left it to its own devices. He didn't just get things going and leave the world to itself, but rather that he is, by his providential government of all things, holding all things together, giving everything its regularity, its consistency, what we call the laws of nature are God's ordinary way of working. God's ordinary way of working. Now, some today, some people today, and certainly in popular culture, there is the general idea that somehow science uh, is non-religious and that somehow it actually conflicts with the claims of Christianity, that you can't really be interested in science and be a Christian, or you can't be a scientist and believe the Bible, that uh, somehow science and religion are in opposition to one another, 
or that at the very least you can't really take the Bible seriously if you're going to be a scientist, that you can't involve religion in science. What I want to do today is that in this first session, and be encouraged because throughout the day my sessions get easier. So we start difficult because it's the morning, and by this afternoon and this evening it's going to be much, much easier. Okay. Um, in our uh, time, when people think about science, um, there is this tendency then to think that our faith and, the sci- and science are somehow incompatible. What I want to do this morning is talk a little bit about the religious assumptions that undergird science and specifically talk about uh, how the idea of morality, moral thought, and scientific thought are to be understood. And how, in fact, um, in the present time with some of the new atheists like uh, Sam Harris, who I'll talk about specifically in his um, book, The Moral Landscape, tries to suggest there is a materialist, a a material, naturalistic way of accounting for morality, and I'm going to critique that just a little bit. So humanistic thinking, pagan thinking about moral values, human values, and remember last night I said that there really are only, when we boil it all down, two worldviews. The one which posits the personal God of the Bible, uncreated being, with created being of the, the world, the creation, and they are totally distinct. God is utterly transcendent. And then one version or another of a oneist world where there, aren't, there isn't uncreated being and created being. There's just being in general. And everything is a product of being in general and has emerged or evolved in, in, uh, from some kind of primeval chaos. Now, all of moral reasoning today has been affected by the Darwinian hypothesis. So that when people talk about, the humanist, the pagan talks about morality today, they're always trying to somehow talk about evolution. That might be shrill evangelists for atheism like Sam Harris or wily philosophers like Peter Singer. It is thus a shock to, to many when leading atheistic philosophers like Thomas Nagel, who I mentioned in passing yesterday, asserted recently in light of common sense and the question of values, he says that the current orthodox account of evolution is, and I quote, an assumption governing the scientific project rather than a well-confirmed scientific hypothesis. Let me say that again, that it is an assumption governing the scientific project rather than a well-confirmed scientific Hypothesis. He says that in his book, Mind and Cosmos. Nevertheless, the basic assumption that is there amongst almost all humanistic uh, thinkers today, it's the dominant view anyway, is the alleged truth of some kind of neo-Darwinism, which they believe typically involves atheism or entails atheism, that you can only have materialistic, naturalistic accounting description of everything. As a result, intellectuals in general argue that modern science, by which they actually mean materialism and Darwinism, by the way, and that's what we're going to differentiate between those two today. They will generally argue that modern science has destroyed uh, the basis of religion, generally, and specifically objective, objective moral 
values. And this view is, is stated in very typical terms by the Nobel laureate Professor Stephen Weinberg in his book, Without God. Um, let me just uh, quote that to you. He says this, the worldview, and when you hear the word worldview, by the way, you can substitute the word faith or cosmology or belief system. The worldview of science is rather chilling, he says. Not only do we not find any point to life laid out for us in nature, no objective basis for our moral principles, no correspondence between, and no correspondence between what we think is the moral law and the laws of nature, but the emotions that we most treasure, our love for our wives and husbands and children, are made possible by chemical processes in our brains that are what they are as a result of natural selection acting on chance mutations over millions of years. Nothing to do with God. Living without God, he says, isn't easy. But its very difficulty offers one other consolation, that there is a certain honor or perhaps a grim satisfaction in facing up to our condition without despair and without wishful thinking, with good humor, but without God. Now, notice that he acknowledges that uh, he says very clearly, living without God isn't easy. Well, why would he say that? Well, it's difficult to account for the things we take for granted if you eliminate God from the picture. That's what he means. We should notice straight away, though, more importantly, there is a philosophical confusion that conflates the method of science, the method of the scientific method itself, with the religious worldview of atheism and materialism. So he says the worldview of science is rather chilling, which immediately means he's presupposed that you cannot have a Christian worldview and do science. He says science is a worldview. Now, that's false. We'll come to why in a moment. Weinberg essentially sees atheism and materialism as one and the same as science. Now, this is what goes on typically in popular culture. When you hear you're watching a documentary, or you're listening to David Attenborough, or you're watching some piece on the news on BBC, what is it here, uh, CBC or whatever, basically there is a a, a confuting of the idea. It is presupposed that materialism, that is, there's nothing but material causes, and atheism are science. And everything else is religion. On this view, Weinberg wants to argue that science tells us there is no objective basis for moral principles, nor any point to life, so we must, with grim satisfaction, he says, stare in the face the chilling reality that we are a bundle of chemical processes that evolve the sense of humor. And that is the standard materialist account of reality. Now, it's been interesting that of late, <clears throat> it's been generally acknowledged that this um, materialistic view of the sciences has left much of the other aspects of life for people feeling very empty. I mean, if there is uh, no objective basis for moral principles, no point to life, and we just stare at the, the uh, misery with grim satisfaction but try and maintain a sense of humor, if that's what life is all about, then it would suggest that science has nothing really to say about moral values and that science can't even enter that discussion or be part of it. 
Now, Sam Harris, recognizing this, uh, how many of you have heard of Sam Harris? Okay, a few of you. So let me just say something very quickly about him. He's one of the three horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're sometimes called. Uh, there's Richard Dawkins, who's perhaps more famous. Then there was Christopher Hitchens, who died recently. And then there was Sam Harris. Um, these were called the sort of new atheists, uh, I, I suppose really because of their sort of virulent and um, uh, very aggressive propagandizing uh, against any form of faith as being uh, evil, uh, not just that that the Christian is wrong, but actually that they're somehow morally evil for holding uh, these perspectives, somehow detrimental to society, dangerous to society, and so on. Um, There's things I could uh, say about Sam Harris's perspectives that would make your hair stand on end. So in terms of who the danger to society is, I don't think it's the Christian. But that's that's their perspective. And he has been frustrated by the fact that Science doesn't seem to be able to enter the moral debate because of this radical materialism and denial of moral values. And so he has attempted to argue recently that whilst we may not be able to arrive at uh, human moral value in any objective or metaphysical sense, that is something that is beyond the physical, because if you've decided and said as a religious perspective that everything is chance plus matter plus time, and there's nothing else. You can't have metaphysics. You can't have anything that's beyond physics. Okay? You can only have the physic world. He's tried to argue that perhaps we can at least determine proper ends. And what does Sam Harris think the proper end of human moral action should be? Well, he calls it global well-being. I wonder why we should choose global well-being as a proper end. It's purely arbitrary, of course. Um, and it just ter- happens to turn out that that involves various forms of, uh, some form, I should say, of um, Marxism and uh, uh, the elimination of, of Christianity. But that's by the by. He thinks that somehow the conclusions of science can replace the idea of an objective transcendent morality and dispense with the idea or the need for ethics and morality. Let me give you a statement by Sam Harris in his book, The Moral Landscape. He says this, to summarize my central thesis, he says, morality and values depend on the existence of conscious minds. Well, there's a revelation. And specifically on the fact that such minds experience various forms of well-being and suffering in this universe. Conscious minds and their states are natural phenomena of course, fully constrained by the laws of nature, whatever these turn out to be in the end. Therefore, there must be right and wrong answers to questions of morality and values that potentially fall within the purview of science. On this view, some people and cultures will be right and some will be wrong with respect to what they deem important in life. Now, Uh, In a recent lecture I gave uh, called the Chesterton Lecture, I actually spent most of my time critiquing that statement, Sam Harris's uh, contorted logic in trying to um, discover morality within this uh, uh, worldview of radical materialism. But he hasn't really said anything in that state. His central thesis doesn't actually tell you anything. All thinking depends on the existence of conscious minds, not just morality. All thought depends on the existence of uh, a conscious mind, and <clears throat> trying to what Harris tries to argue is that what we can do is um, 
collectively decide on what human well-being looks like and then pragmatically work towards it. And he says that's a scientific way of doing morality. In other words, you try and create some kind of pseudo-scientific basis for moral ends. And uh, like most humanists, he says that pain is bad and that um, pleasure is good, and that's what human well-being looks like, eliminating pain. Now, G.K. Chesterton actually noted that, and I quote, the man who thinks without proper first principles goes mad. Thinking in isolation and with pride ends in being an idiot. Every man who does not have a softening of the heart must at last have a softening of the brain. And I think this is specifically and most obviously applicable to those who claim that science can eliminate or determine good and evil. And the problem with people like Harris and others is they do not begin with proper first principles. And when we don't begin with proper first principles, you can't arrive at true conclusions or right conclusions. You just end in this contorted moral nonsense. Now, let's come back to the central question of this session with respect to the nature of science. One of the key questions we must ask uh, when talking about science and values is, what is science? What is it? I've said that the typical popular confusion today is that science is materialism. It's naturalistic thought. It's a, a form of atheism, and that as a result, you can't be a scientist and be a Christian. It's tend to, it tends to be assumed that those two, materialism and science, are one and the same. Now, we should notice straight away that one of the problems those who argue this way have is that the origins of the modern scientific method are decidedly Christian. Rodney Stark, for example, has shown in his work, How the West Won, the Neglected Story of the Triumph of Modernity, what is actually widely accepted and recognized by historians and philosophers of science today, that there was no such thing as the scientific revolution produced by the so-called Enlightenment. Now, I know you learned that in school, but it's wrong. It's wrong. And most historians today uh, would accept that it's wrong. Think about it. Why would you call a period of history the Enlightenment? Well, because what preceded it was what you've been told were the Dark Ages. Am I right or am I right? right? The Dark Ages were followed by the Enlightenment. Well, who named this alleged period of history? Well... They were 18th century philosophers who were trying to discredit Christianity amongst the elite. There was no such thing as what we call today a scientific revolution produced by a period labeled the Enlightenment. In fact, the reality is of the significant scientists of the 16th and 17th century, 25% were members of the clergy. 60% of the greatest scientists of the era were devout Christians, and the rest were conventional believers. There were only 2% who were actually skeptics. Now, Stark documents this. 2% were, were the kind of people that you could have said were skeptics. 
And this is what Stark notes. He says, clearly the superb scientific achievements of the 16th and 17th centuries were the work not of skeptics but of Christian men. The era of the Enlightenment is as imaginary as the era of the Dark Ages, both myths perpetrated by the same people for the same reasons. This is why we have to uh, learn as Christians and remember as Christians that we have to think critically about what we're being taught, especially when we're being taught it in a public education that's turned its back on Christianity. Who labels periods of history anyway? The idea that there was a period of total darkness or the Christian era in which there was no science, no technology, no development is total rubbish. And the recovery actually after the Renaissance of uh, Greek uh, philosophy and so forth led to tyranny uh, socio-politically. And uh, it was not the Enlightenment, it was Christian presuppositions, as I'm going to show you that led to the development of Western science. And that means that what we call modern science was a Western phenomenon. Now, why is that? Is that because the, uh, some, some sort of um, uh, uh, sociological thing about living in the geography of the West? Is there something different in the air? Is there something different in the food or in the water? Was it, is it something to do with ethnicity? No, of course not. There were uh, certain discoveries in other parts of the world that were made, but they were never developed. They weren't advanced. They weren't moved forward. The, the, the people couldn't see the point of advancing the development of those discoveries. And that's because it was in Christian Europe, and only Christian Europe, where there was a belief that science was desirable and possible. The basis of their belief was their image of God and His creation. Now, the great English philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead recognized, even though he was a skeptic, that Christianity was essential to the rise of science. He says, because of this, and I quote, of the medieval insistence on the rationality of God, conceived as with the personal, personal energy of Jehovah and with the rationality of a Greek philosopher, every detail was supervised and ordered the search into nature could only result in the vindication of faith in rationality. In other words, Christendom believed in a rational, personal, purposeful God who created a world of law and structure that was not only rational, but actually subject to investigation and testing, that you could actually test and see if there was, in fact, law, order, structure, regularity, pattern. You see, with the Christian gospel came what I'm going to call the de-divinization of the universe. What does that mean? It means that the universe itself, remember what we talked about last night, oneism and twoism. If there is no transcendent God distinct from and over all of creation, then creation itself becomes divine. Now, the pagan world had divinized the world itself. They saw nature, or at least things arising from nature, as divine. So, the ancient pagan civilizations worshipped their monarchs, their kings, their pharaohs, as an expression of the divine, as the locus of divinity, as the manifestation of divinity in nature. They personified the powers of nature, 
And they filled the universe with gods and spirits and kamis and so on. doesn't matter which uh, world religion you look at, that's what you find. You find a divination of the universe itself. Now, with Christianity, the world was not disenchanted. That is, it wasn't rid... It, God was not uh, kicked out of the universe. He was involved, but it wasn't divinized. So, it wasn't disenchanted. That is to say, it wasn't that God was uninvolved with reality, but that He was totally distinct from creation. Now, impersonal and irrational conceptions of the universe could not have given rise to modern science... And they didn't in the non-European world, as history actually proves. If the world is not created, that is, it has no beginning or predetermined purpose, it is an eternal mystery, unpredictable, possibly arbitrary, since all the facts being unrelated by the mind of God are, in fact, impervious to reason. In other words, the data of our experience would have no meaning until you give it one. Remember what I said yesterday about the join the dot puzzle, where you discover God's meaning in creation? Well, if that isn't true, if God is not the designer and the mind and the supervening government behind the universe, then you're just dealing with these brute facts that are unrelated and therefore impervious to reason. You're trying to find a reason that doesn't exist. It's not there. Now, you might pretend the world has a meaning. That doesn't mean it has one. Aristotle denied the universe came into being at a point in time, and so the ancients often treated the cosmos as a living thing, with natural phenomena occurring in some instances because of motive. The Greek philosophers talked about motive, well, of course, only persons have a motive for doing something, but they, they attributed that kind of idea to nature. And such a pagan view of a divinized, inanimate, natural world could not give birth to modern science. So Aristotle was not concerned with science proper. And this is what Stark points out here. He says, none of Aristotle's work constituted science because his explanations were not linked to systematic observations. He failed to recognize such tests were relevant, end quote. Actually, as I'm sure Dr. Fenske can, um, Ted, for short, uh, will point out in the Q&A, medicine is very interesting in this regard because for a long time, Western medicine was imprisoned within Greek philosophical concepts. Uh, Although there was some limited interest in anatomy, their philosophy of reality dominated how they were going to treat the human body, the four winds, the four humors. Uh, Their whole explanation for um, reality was philosophic, not scientific. Stark concludes, he says, science arose in the West and only in the West precisely because the Judeo-Christian conception of God encouraged and even demanded this pursuit. So that when you look at the Greek philosophers like Zeno, for example, or the Stoic philosopher, that Paul, Paul addressed the Stoics in, in Acts 17, they are explicit that the universe is God. Science then actually requires certain things to be believed about the universe before you can speak about the scientific method. Now that's the important things for Christians, thing for Christians to remember. 
doing science requires that we believe certain things about the world, about reality, before we can speak of the scientific method. And it turns out that those beliefs include a rational, purposeful creation that operates in terms of law-like regularity and consistency. That means that uh, the ideas that exist in your brain, which we'll call abstract ideas, the abstract ideas that exist in your mind, somehow are directly related to the concrete world of the cosmos. That your mind and the world out there are so correlated together that science is made possible. Now, that is not a belief justified by atheism or materialism. Why should, think about this for a moment, why should the ideas that arise in your mind, let's say about mathematics, bear any relationship to the cosmos outside of your mind? Why, could it, why should it be that your mind and the ideas in your mind can adequately describe the physical phenomenon outside of your mind? Why would they be correlated together? Plato actually held to a doctrine of creation, but it was, whereas Aristotle held to an eternal uh, universe, but it was created, he said, by a demiurge. His concept of God, a demiurge was some sort of lesser being, his, his God was an impersonal, rational essence. So in, in the Greek philosophers, you have a universe of impersonal emanation. In other words, Greek philosophy was essentially pantheistic. There's an impersonal force or principle of reason or something, and that emanates into creation. There's no God who has a purpose and an order and a structure and a pattern through which science, as we understand it, might arise. Science further requires the belief that we can posit a hypothesis, that is, we can uh, suggest a, a uh, a theory, a scientific theory, like gravity, for example, and then test these hypotheses to uncover what is true and rational about the universe. So when we do science, we don't actually invent or develop for ourselves the rationality of the universe. We discover it. We don't determine it. We discover it. Now, to show you how um, astonishing that really is, Albert Einstein acknowledged, and he was a pantheist, by the way, he was a pantheistic skeptic, he said that basically on his worldview, on his belief about the world, he says, quote, a priori, that's before our experience or our testing, one would expect a chaotic world which cannot be grasped by the mind in any way, end quote. If you deny the God of the Bible, which he did, you ought to expect, he says, a chaotic world which cannot be grasped by the mind in any way. So how did he account for the fact that some of his math could describe the world? Well, it was a miracle to him. <laughs> he saw it as a miracle. It was somehow, he said, true that True knowledge expands through the explanatory power of reasoning in scientific investigation, and that was a mystery. So there are scientists and thinkers who would prefer an eternal mystery that somehow the idea is here. So, for example, 
Why is it that the math, that as an abstract idea in our mind, can land uh, spacecrafts on Mars? Why would that be possible? You don't, um, uh, you don't experimentally uh, test mathematical theorems. So, and actually you can't hold a number. I mean, you can take a fridge magnet number two off the fridge, but you don't possess the number two. It's not something material that you hold and say, I've got two-ness now. Nobody can take it from me. Now, these are beliefs. In fact, there's multiple theories about what numbers actually are. There's no agreement about that. <laughs> But somehow, it's descriptive of reality. Now, you either say that's down to God because he's the creator of all things visible and invisible, or you say it's an eternal mystery. So given the religious basis, that is a metaphysical, rational basis for the rise of science in the West, it would be strange if that science were then used to attempt to condemn the Christian faith or metaphysics that birthed it. And the existence of a creator that makes science intelligible. But that's exactly what's happening in the name of science. People like Sam Harris, giving one contemporary example, refers to faith-based religion, by which he means Christianity, as, quote, that great engine of ignorance and bigotry. So the great engine of ignorance and bigotry that gave you science, you're now trying to use science to condemn the very thing that provided you the basis and foundation for your project. This is the schizophrenia of the, of the non-believer. It's intellectually schizophrenic. You undermine that which provides you the foundation for doing your science. A rudimentary understanding, actually, of the history of Christendom that gave us science and the origin of the university would help him considerably. It was Christianity that gave us the university. The university, by the way, means unity and diversity. Uni-versity. And the queen of the sciences was theology. And theology provided the framework, the unity by which the diversity of studies were to be related and understood. So the university has been called the last medieval institution. Now, today, what we've created with humanism, with paganism, is the multiversity. There's no unity in the diversity of things anymore. There's no principle of unity in God and his self-revelation. So the self-contradictory attempt to use science to overthrow metaphysics, since science rests on metaphysics, beliefs that you can't prove about reality before you can do science illustrates how important it is that we do not confute the scientific method and philosophy or try to collapse science and philosophy as Sam Harris and others do. Now, they're involved in each other, of course, because fact and value or fact and meaning are related. That is to say, all facts are theory-laden. Nobody talks about facts without having already related those facts to some overall theory. Otherwise, you've just got raw data. You say something is a fact, you're already relating it, its facticity, to a whole load of other facts that make that fact intelligible. Yeah? Facts don't stand in isolation on their own as a universe unto themselves. They are facts because they correlate to other facts that are part of a theory. 
Scientific um, hypotheses, by the way, and theories are never proven. They're never proven. They operate in terms of a sliding scale of probability. There's a very high probability and very low probability for various scientific hypotheses. But because all the facts are not in, that is to say, you do not have all the knowledge uh, necessary about the universe from the beginning of time to its end, there is information that you don't have that might undermine your hypothesis about pretty much anything. What happened, for example, today if after lunch you said, I'm going to go outside for um, some fresh air, and you shot up into the air? Well, in a chaotic universe, you'd have to say that would be possible. At least theoretically possible. But you don't. You, you, when you walk outside here, you won't shoot up into the air. I can promise you that. I'm going to make a prophecy that I think is ironclad. When you walk out of the doors today, you're going to stay on the ground. And that's because of the regularity and order and structure and pattern, God's ordinary way of working that we call natural laws, guarantees it. A chaotic universe would guarantee nothing. That's why Bertrand Russell called scientific facts uh, and the, 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 even the existence of our universe, really, as a statistical anomaly in the chaos. Once you eject God from the world, the facts of our experience are statistical anomalies in the chaos. Or you have ridiculous ideas like string theory where people start saying there are an infinite number of universes with an infinite number of laws, uh, different laws. So this one just happens to have these laws by chance because there are an infinite number of other universes that have different laws. Never mind. We'll have lunch in a minute. Okay. Just a few more minutes here. So, it is obvious that abstract generalizations may or may not be scientific in the strict sense. We can make generalizations about reality, as these atheists do, about uh, uh, materialism or naturalism, which may or may not be scientific. Now, what they've done, what the, what the, world, what the pagan world has done in order to try and discredit Christianity is said that... Its generalizations, philosophical, religious generalizations, its faith about the world is science. Let me give you one example here. They hold that all reality is just matter in motion. That is, there's no spiritual reality, there's no true mind. And this means that all human experience and knowledge is accounted for in terms of physicalism. Mental events are merely, I'll give you a technical term now, if you've got false teeth, keep them, hold them in, epiphenomenal. Epiphenomena is something that is a byproduct of just a material event. So your thoughts, your ideas, your love for your family, and so on, is an epiphenomena. It's a byproduct simply of a material event. It's not because you have a mind. You don't have a mind, you have a brain. It's not because you have a spirit or a soul. It's because they say it's just a byproduct of some chemical event. Some of you look like you're a byproduct of a chemical event right now, but uh, I understand that's my lecture, not you. As a consequence, what they say is that only some kind of empirically justified statement, a scientific statement in those terms, can be counted as true knowledge. It had a name, they called it logical positivism. But that belief is not scientific. It's not a scientific belief that all your mental events are epiphenomena. 
That is to say, when was it empirically observed and tested that all reality is material and that human experience and knowledge are merely emergent properties of matter? Nobody's proved that. Nobody's empirically observed that. That's a metaphysical belief that is supposed to control people's conclusions about science. One of the materialist, indeed on the materialist basis actually, rational thought itself, logical reasoning of mind, uh, and by the way, thought is immaterial itself. I mean, that's a disproof of physicalism right there. Thought, you, you don't say, oh, look, there's a thought, catch it, quick. You don't hold thoughts, you can't catch them, they're not material things. If I crack your head open this afternoon, I can't observe your thoughts. There's just going to be a whole load of sludge in there. Right? I can't observe your thought processes. What happens is that logic and reason are destroyed on this basis because logic and reason, rationality, your ability to comprehend anything that I'm saying today, becomes brain gas. Right? It's equivalent to saying, well, let's take two cans of Coke and we'll shake them both up, and then we'll pop the cans. Your brain is like that. And whichever one fizzes the most, that's the right conclusion. None of your conclusions in life on this basis about anything would be the result of logic and reason. They're the result simply of how the molecules in your brain shake down. Now, if you shake two cans of Coke, there's no, there's no right fizz and wrong fizz. They're just fizz. It's just, they're just fizzing. They're just a chemical reaction. You can't say, this chemical reaction is right and true and good. This one is wrong and bad. Right? They're just chemical reactions. Well, that's what thought is reduced to on this basis. Actually, you see how it destroys and undermines itself? If I'm going to have an argument with Sam Harris, what's the point? My brain gas leads me to this conclusion. His brain gas leads him to that conclusion. What's the point in him writing a book? Nobody who reads his book is going to rationally evaluate it and on the basis of logic reach the conclusion that he's right. It's purely physic, material determinism, you see. This is what happens when you have a reductionist approach to science. If we rightly define science itself, though, we immediately see that there is no sense in which science can determine values. Of any description, actually, but especially when we talk about good and evil, which require an objective, transcendent referent. This is neither a chemical event in my brain, nor an arbitrary preference of my subjective tastes, that's subjectivism, nor is it a cultural consensus relative to my time and circumstance. It is something that is objective. It's beyond simply the deliverances of my mind something that transcends them. I often have said in uh, some of the debates I've done on the existence of God over the years, at the beginning of the debate, that by turning up, my opponent lost. Because if you turn up to a debate on the existence of God, what you're saying is that there is truth that transcends our minds. That is, that there is a standard of truth by which the truth or falsehood of God's existence might be determined that is beyond the brain gas of the material results of my thinking. You see? If we can say that we can make a judgment between this and that, 
and reach a rational conclusion, we're saying that there is truth that transcends our minds. But that's precisely what the materialist says is impossible. I've lost some of you. Never mind. So what is the best definition of science? Well, it's simple. Science is best defined as a method used in organized efforts to formulate explanations of nature, always subject to modification and correction through systematic observations. Let me say that again. This is Rodney Stark's definition, and I think it's a good one. It's uncontroversial. Science is best defined as a method used in organized efforts to formulate explanations of nature, always subject to modification and correction through systematic observations. In other words, science is a method. It's a tool. It's not a worldview. It's a tool that can be used either consistent with a worldview or inconsistently with a worldview. It's a method for investigating and describing physical reality, but it cannot define or prescribe meaning or moral reality any more than painting a landscape with brushes and oils defines ascetic beauty. Just because I can paint doesn't mean I've defined ascetic beauty. Just because I can use the tools of science doesn't mean that I have subsumed the meaning of reality with a tool. It's just a tool. It's a method of investigation that allows you to, in a certain area of life, come up with explanations that may or may not be correct. I mean, speak to any doctor about doing the science of medicine and diagnosing a patient. It's trial and error. It might be this, it might be that. We could try this, we could try that. We could see if this or that. And things that we used to do all the time, like bleeding people out to cure them of the flu, like bloodletting, which we now know is ridiculous, uh, trial and error, finally we realized, hang on a sec, maybe bleeding people out actually weakens them rather than strengthens them when they're ill. So it's a project, but the effort to try and um, draw out metaphysical beliefs from mere material observations uh, that, are, that, are, that are actually philosophical in character is the mistake that is being made by most people in popular culture. The idea that science is somehow a worldview, that science is this definitive body of absolute truth that has contradicted Christianity or the Bible. That's a myth. The solutions that have been on offer that uh, Sam Harris offers in his book, The Moral Landscape, to trying to define moral truth on the basis of science, that is, on the basis of his metaphysical view of science, uh, the way he's gone about it is to subsume everything that exists under the category of natural phenomena. So you say that the mind, your emotions, everything is just a natural phenomena, nothing more. And so if everything is a natural phenomena, then you can reduce it to a scientific question susceptible to scientific explanation and a scientific solution. And of course, that is very dangerous because the Nazis did that. The communists were involved in that. Scientific materialism says every human pro because everything is a natural phenomena and everything is a product of nature, and you're a product of nature, then we need to do social experiments 
Everything, all of life becomes a scientific social experiment. Because you cannot arrive at anything objective that transcends the world for values, really it becomes a question of the elite deciding what are going to be the preferred metaphysical beliefs, and then they will employ the tools of the sciences to do their experiments, and they'll do their experiments on society and on human beings. Sam Harris actually believes that um, sooner or later we are going to be able to fix people of their religious delusions scientifically. You know what that means. There'll be some kind of, uh, the idea is that there there must be some kind of scientific way where we can uh, bring about the following outcomes that we don't like, or that Sam Harris in particular doesn't like. If we are the source of definition for morality in terms of these tentative, pragmatic social measurements that are social science, because there's no longer an unchanging, objective, moral truth in the universe, well, there's certainly no obligation to obey tentative moral arithmetic of the social science professors or these scientists who say, well, Sam Harris says we should pursue global well-being, and that means Marxism. Well, if you say, well, I don't agree with that, because you're not obligated to his view, the only thing that you're left with is scientific coercion. That you have to coerce people into this view of reality. And we've seen historic experiments with that before. Now, I could go on and talk about the destruction of freedom and uh, ethics and everything else on the basis of materialism. There are multiple critiques of materialism. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take questions now. So we've got, uh, I think, 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes perhaps, I've been told. Um, We're going to finish by quarter two. That's the absolute cutoff so we can go to our break. There may not be that many questions, but uh, I'll take questions now. Now, how do professors uh, of natural selection get past calculations of those like uh, Vikram Singh or statements from Max Planck, uh, assuming before creation there must be, or before materialism, there must be an invisible and intellectual mind actively in control of all all matter. Mm -hmm. Well, there are are, uh, philosophers and scientists who are not Christians uh, who recognize that they are on the horns of a a problem, a dilemma. Uh, This is why I introduced last night, I talked about uh, Thomas Nagel, who's an atheistic philosopher, a poster boy for, uh, for atheism, a very famous, well-known atheist. When he came out with this statement that I quoted to you at the beginning, let me see if I can find it here, um, that uh, the orthodox account of evolution, natural selection, is an assumption governing the scientific project rather than a well-confirmed scientific hypothesis. Dawkins and co. were so panicked, they held a kind of heresy meeting in Britain you know, to deal with this. Uh, Thomas Nagel has doubted the evolutionary paradigm? How, this can't be allowed. I mean, they, and they, they had a meeting. See what they were going to do. They might have to excommunicate him. Uh, you'll remember that... Um, oh, gosh, his name's just popped out of my mind. Um, a, f- a very famous atheist um, in the, who's just recently passed away um, became a theist towards the end of his life. Can anybody remember off the top of their head? Anthony Flew, thank you. Who just said that? Thank you. Anthony Flew is the man I was thinking of. Anthony Flew. Now, 
there are those Christians who were interacting with him a lot towards the end of his life, and he became con- convinced of the existence of God, at least, on the basis of two things. The arguments from intelligent design theorists and uh, the um, uh, essentially arguments for God in terms of rationality, law, pattern, structure. Now, I don't know whether he became a Christian. I don't know that. He did say that the only theism worth considering, uh, that was the, he said the leading contender was Christianity, that all the others were cheap knockoffs. Okay, so I think he came to Christian convictions. I can't be sure of that. But there are those who, and of course, that again was, well, he must have been senile. He was getting old, and, you know, that's what they were saying about Anthony Flew, this, this great hero of atheism for the 20th century. Oh, he must have been going senile. He was getting old, you know, didn't, scared of death, became a theist. So there are those who recognize the need for mind, but they invariably will not return to the God of Scripture. They'll go back to some Greek conception of the Stoic conception of a rational principle or the universe is a mind like Thomas Nagel, which are, are, are equally problematic. It's because it's purely arbitrary, something which is uh, fundamentally impersonal. How can, you, how can you credit design, plan, intention, motive to something which is an impersonal, rational principle? We don't have a conception of mind that is, that is fundamentally impersonal. In, impersonal. I mean, we, 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 talk, we sometimes talk about um, uh, even our dogs and cats and so forth. They have personality, okay? They act on instinct, but there is nonetheless personality there. There's probably not planning. I mean, the squirrels seem to have a plan during the fall, don't they, um, about the winter. But what they do, they do by instinct. Um, but when we talk about design intention, intentionality and planning, we, we only can think in terms of mind as we understand it as human beings. So I have found what you typically find is that people will uh, almost allow any conception of mind and rationality behind the universe as long as it's not the God of the Bible. And they'll admit that their decision is arbitrary, typically. Mm. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, I don't accept the thesis that history is written by the victors. You can read plenty of histories that were written by defeated uh, peoples and individuals. Napoleon Bonaparte, uh, for example, wrote a great deal about the the, the wars and his experiences in exile and everything else, and he was defeated. So very often people recording history don't know they're going to be the losers yet. Right? So... Uh, that is a, that's, a, that's essentially a, a cultural Marxist approach to history that says truth is all about power relations. And uh, the, the only reason we have this history or that social reality is because those in power have, have um, made it so. Okay? So that, um, it's, as Nietzsche put it, everything is the will to power. It's all about power. So we as Christians certainly do not accept the thesis that... Uh, that history is purely uh, something written by the victors. But to your point about Islam, which is a very, very good question, um, Islam uh, is, a, um, is a cobbling together of borrowed bits and pieces. So, uh, yes, it is true that um, uh, the, in what some have referred to as an uh, as a, as a Islamic golden age, although I, I would question its characterization as a golden age if you weren't a Muslim, um, the so-called Islamic golden age of science and Arabic learning and so forth um, 
was <clears throat> stolen and borrowed learning primarily. That is, that it was borrowed from Syriac Christianity. So the, we, can, we can show that the sources for the Quran are, are, are romances. Uh, they are from uh, Syrian, uh, primarily Syrian sources, and uh, what we would call apocryphal gospel accounts. So the information about Jesus and much of the material, the stories about the Bible, are taken from these um, uh, Syriac sources. Now, the early... Uh, what we have to remember is that the Muslim world, the Islamic world, with all the controversy that surrounds the origin of Islam, and there are those who have question whether Muhammad even existed as a historical character because of the fact that it's about 100 years before we actually find any reference to him historically um, from the alleged founding of Islam. Um, were th these people were Bedouins who came out of the desert, and they began to conquer... Uh, vast swathes of the um, Christian world. So this is what we have to remember, is that the Islamic world took in slave peoples. They were Christians in the Arabian Peninsula um, and th through the Middle East and North Africa. Those were all Christian lands. And there existed there sophisticated Christian learning, uh, translations of the, um, the, uh, the, the intellectuals that the Islamic empire took in were Christian intellectuals who were translating the ancient Greek texts. So, uh, what Islam has of value, it borrowed. Now, I'm sure there were Islamic thinkers who, borrowing uh, uh, biblical presuppositions, and don't forget, perhaps Islam is best characterized as a kind of Aryan cult. It's a sort of Unitarianism. So, it posits God, but it denies the Son. It denies the doctrine of the Trinity. So, I'm sure that there, was, uh, there were Islamic scholars and philosophers who tried to build on some of this learning that they gleaned from the Christian world. And later on, uh, yes, it's true that uh, as European dominance um, came to the fore, uh, there were, they discovered that uh, um, there were various translations of some of the ancient texts and there, were, there, there was advanced learning in the Arab world. But its root was not in Islam. In fact, you wouldn't be able to develop a, a, a science on the basis of the Islamic conception of God. You wouldn't have been able to develop modern science on the Islamic conception of who God is. God does not reveal himself. He reveals an arbitrary law called the Quran, which is eternal, written on tablets of stone in Arabic. It's not even, the word of God's not even translatable, according to Muslim scholars. Now, you can have a, an interpretation of it. That's what they call a translation, but that's not the word of God. Now, we as Christians don't say that, well, if you translate the Greek New Testament into English, it's no longer the Word of God. In Islam, you have a doctrine of fate. There's only one will in the universe, and everything is fatalistic. So if you look at the Islamic world, when it ceased to be able to take in Christian peoples by conquest, it stagnated. So you look at the Islamic world today, where there is not the influence, or direct influence of Western thought or Western money, um, you have Islamic cultures are backward. My parents lived in Pakistan for 17 years. That's an Islamic culture. If you go to um, uh, Indonesia, th these are, from a, from a, um, a sociological uh, point of view, these cultures were backward because they ceased to be able to take in, by conquest, Christian slave peoples, which is where the learning was borrowed from. And that's why if you look at... Um, uh, the, the Islamic movement today that is troubling people all over the world, ISIS, what's it going back to? When, when, when Islam returns to its roots, what, is it, what does it become? 
Well, it becomes what Muhammad's life and experience was in the Hadith, the life of an example of Muhammad. It becomes what the Quran teaches, right? It, it, you, you don't, when you return to the sources of Islam, you don't restore high culture. You, you actually restore the, the uh, seventh century um, uh, early medieval barbarism. That's, that's the true nature of Islam. So uh, my argument in, in, essentially is this, that the, 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 what is a value that came out of Islamic learning was because of the foundations that it borrowed from Christianity through slave peoples, um, which is the origin of the university. And when it ceased to be able to do that, the Islamic world stagnated. And it's now, of course, in, in, uh, in, in reaction in movements like ISIS when Islam returns to its own sources, you don't have a reformation like you had in Britain, which produced medicine, hospitals, um, advanced learning, and so forth. When it goes back to its sources, what you get is um, medieval warlord, which is what Muhammad was. Hello. Uh, so just a follow-up um, on James's question. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to the Roman Empire and its advances in terms of like aqueducts engineering and in terms of what sorry aqueducts yeah and engineering and those uh, engineering feats and so on right? yeah because it wasn't until the I believe from history class it wasn't until like the 17th century that uh, engineering in the Western world really obtained the same level as of advancement as they did uh, in the Roman Empire uh huh. Well, first of all, I would encourage you to read um, uh, Rodney Stark's book, um, How the West Won, um, which is a historical survey of, of these issues, which I think challenges some of the, um, the assumptions that we often make. There's been a very, very big process of romanticizing um, what the ancient Greco-Roman world was like. It was um, fundamentally a terrifying place to exist under all manner of tyranny. And um, <clears throat> when it came to even things like... Um, uh, medicine, when the plagues hit, the doctors fled the cities. It was only Christians that remained in the early centuries to treat and deal with the sick. And in fact, we see immediately the emergence of the hospital. You can read non-believers like Roy Porter who talk about the hospital being a Christian invention. But as to aqueducts and stuff, let me make clear what I'm not saying about non-believers. I'm not saying that the non-believer can't do science. I'm not saying that the non-believer can't do engineering. The pyramids, <laughs> right? Or the Tower of Babel in Genesis um, uh, chapter 11 there, um, these early ziggurats. And so we, it's very clear that non-believers had all kinds of advances in engineering. The question is, can you go about those things if you're consistent with pagan presuppositions? So when, a, um, when an engineer who is an atheist who doesn't believe in God and law and structure and order is basic to reality starts designing a bridge, is he designing a bridge on the basis of his beliefs or on borrowed assumptions from another worldview? Now, he's actually borrowing the assumptions of a Christian worldview that there is order, structure, design, plan, consistency, and so forth so that he can go about his engineering project. And the reason we can, that he does that is because he's a creature made in the image of God. What we have to remember is that we're all creatures made in God's image, and we live in God's world, and that's very difficult to escape. That's why I quoted the, the scientists at the beginning who said, it's difficult not to believe in God. It's 
That's why Richard Dawkins says when you look at the biological system, you have to keep reminding yourself what you're looking at is not designed. Because it seems to be. Okay? When you look inside a cell in this vast factory of, uh, of complexity, which of course Darwin had no conception of, it looks designed. So it's difficult not to believe in God, but nonetheless, man, in his moral suppression of um, his ethical hostility to God, suppresses the truth, Paul says, in unrighteousness. Now, that doesn't mean he's incapable of uh, functioning as a man, as a creature made in God's image, to think God's thoughts after him. So I'm not, what I'm not saying is that uh, the pagan world had no development. It did have development. But what we call modern science, modern science, where, we've, where the biggest benefits have been seen uh, in essentially medicine and technology, this uh, developed its level of sophistication. You think about it for a moment, how for thousands of years, um, we really were still using the, the, the same systems. There had been essentially very, very little change between how you went to war in uh, the first millennia, and how you were going to war in the Roman world, and steadily, how you, and even how you were going to war in the, in the, in the medieval period. Now, Stark would challenge the idea that, um, you know, that, that when the Western um, crusaders came to the East, they were sort of, uh, they didn't know how to use a telescope, and uh, they were sort of ignorant um, uh, barbarians, and then they discovered all this learning in the East. That, that, that is mythological, but... Um, it, is, it is simply the case that in a, in a very short period of time after the Reformation, we began to see a very, very rapid, as we returned to biblical uh, faith and, and life in Europe, there was a very, very rapid development of science and technology. Um, and it's due, and this is, it's actually uncontroversial to say amongst philosophers of science and historians that this was due to the religious assumptions that were there in the Western world. doesn't mean a non-Christian can't fly a plane can't be a great scientist. He can. The question is, is he or she being consistent with their worldview? I've tried to show you today, this morning, that if the, mater the materialist atheist who denies God is consistent with their own worldview, they wouldn't even attempt to do science. They wouldn't even begin the project. It's because they are borrowing the assumptions of the biblical worldview that they go about the project of the sciences. Um, there's more on that on the on the book table. Thank you.